Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Replacing Tweet Victory with a giant bucket of gloom. It's election shock therapy. Hey, everybody. Uh, normally, I come in with a whole lot of... Uh, um, fire and energy, but it just doesn't feel right in the context of a um, massive uh, conflict in Ukraine with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And that's what we're here to do today. Uh, my name is Chris Moore and joining me in this podcast are uh, Chris Garrett's professor of history at Bethel. <laughs> Chris, you're here. You, hey. We lured a historian into this. Is this nothing rhymes with Garrett's or is it is not you it or... is not college for christians it's not but pie hey, school no. pie wait a minute what podcast is this don't leave don't leave you're you're in the right place so. <laughs> we, we, we've we, we've trapped our our erstwhile diplomatic historian into uh talking to us a little bit about what's been going on in ukraine and some historical analogies there as well but also joining us uh in the chris show here is <laughs> matt kukin we figured we needed some diversity in like the first names. So exactly, yes. <laughs> Chris, Chris, and Matt. This is the uh, very white bread kind of uh, podcast thing. Oh, for sure. All right, yeah. it's the okay. CCM podcast, Chris. It is. Ooh, very white there bread. we go. Yeah. I'll get my DC talk out. Okay, so let me um, uh, let me just give a really quick rundown of where things are at. Last time, election shock therapy was in your ears. We were just in the early days of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And the thought was at that point that Russia would use overwhelming power and force to relatively quickly subdue the Ukrainian military, seize control of major Ukrainian cities. And the real question would be what happens next with in terms of uh, Western responses and popular uprisings, those sorts of things. Things have not gone as we expected. One month in, it's either the case or possibly both cases that Ukraine has overperformed Western expectations of their military prowess, and certainly the case that Russia has underperformed in terms of its military capacities. It's a its attempt to relatively quickly sprint to major cities like Kiev have been unsuccessful. At present, as the time of this recording, Russian military forces are about 55 kilometers outside of Kiev, and actually the last 48 hours they've been pushed back. Uh, there, also, it's the case that there's been stiffer ex- resistance than in many places than uh, perhaps Russia or Western experts expected. But it hasn't been all uh, bad news for the Russian military. They have experienced success in the southeast around the Black Sea, uh, successfully surrounding the city of Mariupol. Uh, and if they are able to seize Mariupol, which is still contested at this time, It will nearly connect Crimea with the Donbass region, creating sort of a Russian-controlled strip of land across the southeastern part of Ukraine. And this is in addition to the actual strategic military operations. uh, The fighting in Ukraine has turned increasingly brutal with uh, extensive uh, accounts of shelling, including of civilian areas, hospitals, schools. And this has created a massive refugee crisis. As of yesterday, Uh, The UN is reporting that half of all Ukrainian children have been displaced from their homes. 
and perhaps as many as 25% of all of Ukrainians have been turned into refugees. This is a grim situation, and there's no sign in the short term that's going to get anything better anytime soon. We can't possibly tell you everything that's going to happen. It's not even uh, that kind of prediction is outside of our, 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 the scope of our powers. But what we are uh, uh, equipped to do is provide some analysis. And so one of the reasons, Chris, that we wanted to have you on here is to confront something that's been showing up increasingly in the news. Uh, comparisons of the Russian invasion of Ukraine with uh, the Cold War, questions about whether this is a new Cold War, and comparisons to World War II. This is uh, the, one of the largest military operations in Europe since World War II. Chris, how valid are some of those comparisons? How valid are some of those, uh, those analogies? Yeah, I, I mean, it's something I'm actually going to talk about in a couple of weeks in our Intro to History class, because in some respects, like the value of our discipline rests on our ability to make analogies between past and present. Right? Like, human experience is not so much in flux that we can't compare ourselves to people who came before or events to analogs before. Um, and like we, we, in their sense, feed disciplines like political science by giving you case studies that you can then mine lessons from. So like, I, I think it's a totally understandable impulse. And especially in the case of war, how do we make sense of something so confusing and so foggy in close business terms? Well, we looked at previous wars that we've had some distance from that we've been thinking about for a long time. Um, and so like, these are the obvious two. And maybe I'll kind of come back to the Cold War later, because, uh, of course, that's a war that didn't really happen. Um, and so actually, what I want to come back to with that is maybe thinking about what is the Cold War versus this tell us about the nature of power, I think is something to think about, superpower, but also maybe the nature of what NATO is supposed to do. I think is relevant. So what I've been thinking about more is World War II. Um, I'm teaching classes on both of these next year. And so this is kind of timely in terms of making the case for the relevance of them. World War II, I was thinking about because earlier this week, Anthony Beaver, who's a British military historian and British uh, military veteran, wrote a piece in The Atlantic. Um, uh, and he's drawing on his expertise, which is particularly the Eastern Front of World War II where the Soviet Union fights the most brutal side of World War II against Germany starting in 1941 until 1945. And so Beaver has written several well-received books, including one about the Battle of Stalingrad in 1942. That's kind of the turning point of that front of the war. And his point was that the Russians seem to have taken the wrong lessons away from World War II, which is that you can win not just with overwhelming numerical force, but particularly with armor. Right, mm -hmm. What turns the tide on the Eastern Front in World War II, especially at the Battle of Kursk in 1943, is that um, you know, partly it's that the, the Germans are unable to take the industrial heartlands in like the Ural region. And so the Soviets, after kind of recovering from the initial shock of the invasion, managed to start churning out uh, not just airplanes, but, but tanks, some pretty effective tanks that are better than like the American tanks that fought against the Panzers in North Africa. Uh, and so this helps turn the tide. And so uh, Beaver's argument is that the Russians then have had this kind of love affair with armor and not always armor supported by infantry. And I think, and so I don't know exactly how valid, but he's more expert about this than I am. His argument is that the Russians thought that they could win a quick victory simply because they've got tanks and they wouldn't need to support mm. it. They wouldn't need to follow up on it. It would just break through, rush to Kiev, rush to Kharkiv, rush to Odessa, whatever they're trying to take. And that would be it. And of course, you, you do need infantry to consolidate your gains, even in the 21st century. But maybe more importantly, the Ukrainians are actually very good at killing tanks. Mm -hmm. And so as we've had discussions about how do we, should the West, should NATO supply 
uh, Ukraine, a lot of it's been about like uh, airplanes, but it's also been about anti-tank weapons. And so to Beaver, that's one of the big failings. Uh, the other is that the Russians love big artillery, which we've seen. I mean, if we've seen the battle, it's we've seen ruined buildings, which in a sense, it's, it's very ineffective, right? It certainly doesn't seem to have sapped the morale of the Ukrainian military or population. And if anything, as often happens when you decimate a city, it's just kind of deepened their sense of we need to fight, right? And it's created this uh, public uh, image crisis of the Russians are committing war crimes, as mm -hmm. Joe Biden announced this week. And so the, this, the sight of missiles and shells destroying hospitals, destroying other uh, you know, apartment buildings, schools, et cetera. Theaters, yeah. Exactly. So those are the two things. And then the final thing Beaver said is it's just one more example of how callous the Russians are about the use of their soldiers. Um, in, in, in both wars, these are mostly conscripts. They're not choosing to be there. They're not deeply motivated. They don't really care about what they're doing. Uh, in World War II, though, the, the Soviet army had punishment battalions and political officers to ensure compliance at the cost of many thousands of lives. Uh, in this case, it's not quite as clear that exists. And so that's why you get the scenes of like Russian POWs going on social media talking about how horrible this war is and how they really don't want to be fighting it, right? So that, I mean, that's as I think about World War II, that's the, that's actually a set of analogies I find pretty compelling. It illustrates some of the weaknesses of of Russia's uh, power entering what should seem like a very asymmetric war, right? So let me ask you a, a follow up question on that, Chris, because that's that's really interesting. And just to underscore something you said a moment ago, uh, if Russia, if um, if if, if Bieber's right, and Russia essentially over relied on armor and thought they could just drive tanks very quickly down from Belarus into Kyiv, um, capture the city, perhaps to use a Bush-era-ism, a Bush, Bush uh, be greeted as liberators, and quickly overturn uh, the Zelensky government. What they neglected was the fact that in the absence of infantry, which admittedly moves a lot slower than armor, but protects armor from the kinds of attacks armor can't defend itself against. That's why you get these videos. This is it was incredible to me. These videos on TikTok of Ukrainians in like sort of personal cars driving past tanks and throwing Molotov cocktails into tanks. Mm -hmm. That wouldn't happen if there was infantry accompanying those tanks. Um, so I, I, there is some sort of visceral evidence that I think that there is this, this is vulnerability. But that seems like uh, joint force deployment 101. Mm -hmm. How did the Russians miss this? Did they just get the intelligence wrong? Well, it's, I mean, and like this is, this is not really my field, but um, let me just pick up one more example of what seems to be the overwhelming, I mean, I don't know if it's incompetence or poor planning or uh, partly it's like the decapitation of the Russian military. You know, like you might've mm -hmm. noticed the reports about, um, sometimes generals, but certainly like high ranking officers of various sorts being killed, right? I, I was trying to research this earlier and I couldn't really find an answer, but like Russia fought a war in Afghanistan for about nine years. I'm not sure in nine years, they lost as many commanders of this rank as they have in a, in a month in Ukraine. And so Beaver points out one reason for that is their communications plan was entirely founded on using 3G networks. And to the extent there were any 3G towers, they knocked them down. And so Russian commanders have been literally using uncoded cell phone communications that Ukrainians are just listening in on and locating commanders and assassinating them. Right? Wow. Like it's a, like at some level, right? Mm -hmm. It's just monumentally incompetent. And I don't know if that, what that reveals about um, you know, kind of endemic weaknesses of the Russian state or the Russian military or just 
as often happens, very poor planning, or you prepare to fight the wrong war, right? Because you take the wrong lessons away. I, I guess I don't know enough about the Russian national security structure or you know Putin's leadership or his minister's leadership, but one way or another, if you're wondering how Ukraine has survived this lying, it, it might have to do with Ukrainian will and fight and patriotism and morale. Uh, it has a lot to do apparently with Russian incompetence and in planning and execution. Because you're right, it feels like any kind of armchair quarterback looking at this who knows anything about how you fight a combined arms offensive would know you don't just send a bunch of tanks in it and they kind of hope that it's over in a week, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that that's exactly right. And I think another thing, too, is the Russians have been super bad about logistics, right? And that's been mm. a huge problem for them. Um, I mean, there's this quip going around uh, that's, I mean, it's been around for a while. It's that amateurs talk about strategy, professionals talk about logistics, right? Um, if the, you know, the lifeblood of an army is, you know, food and ammunition, right? Resupply. And the Russians have been really bad at that. And, and part of the reason they've been bad at it is, I mean, first of all, it's really hard to do well on a really large scale. That's the first thing. And you need infantry to support. Um, also, if you sort of expect to roll in and liberate, you don't expect that you're going to need much of the way of resupply. And clearly they made that miscalculation. Um, I think just from what I've been reading, it seems like uh, Putin and his own top commanders have been basically drinking their own Kool-Aid about um, what the Ukrainians think about um, think about Russia and potentially coming back within the Russian orbit. Um, when you combine that with the fact that, and I'm sure Chris, you can speak to this, or Chris Moore, you can speak to this, when you know dictators oftentimes suffer from lack of good advice because um, they surround themselves with yes men because the no men get killed, right? Um, Putin, you know, is probably miscalculating um, some of the situation because he's primarily got people who are telling him, yes, we absolutely can do this. Um, Russia has a long history of Russian dictators have a long history of killing people who are defeatist um, and um, who who say that it can't be done. Right. Um, and who perform, you know, less than um, less than well and don't provide good results. So so I think there's just a lot of miscalculation um, that led to bad logistical planning, bad strategy, and that is really contributing to to some of what you're seeing here. So yeah, let me let me weigh in that really quickly and then I'd like uh, then we'll shift away from Russia itself towards the broader implications of this conflict. The analysis of Putin himself as a leader that I have come to admire the most comes from people like Elena Polyakova, Timothy Fry, who I think is really uh, strong on on analysis of, of Putin himself and his regime suggest that Putin gets lauded regularly in the West for being sort of this master chess player. And that's probably not the case. Uh, he is probably great as a poker player, uh, to, use, to use an analogy. Yeah. He's, he's good at running, pressing risk, pushing advantage, pressing envelope to see how far he can push, whether it's um, uh, accumulation of power, but not necessarily setting up Russia in sort of a broad geostrategic position here. And he might have gotten trapped by his own misinformation. So the thought was he'd been running sort of a low intensity conflict in the Donbass region since 2014, uh, that perhaps the West was weak and fractured after the United States withdrawal from Afghanistan, which went very poorly for the Biden administration, that he might be able to sort of press into Ukraine. But then as things escalated, he didn't have a clear exit. And because the side that he was expecting to capitulate didn't, he was sort of essentially found himself into this narrowing gap where he had to continue to press forward. But 
he didn't realize how dangerous the situation was because he was only receiving positive news about the likely outcomes. Yeah. I, I think that's a, I think that's a decent read of him himself. And, and, and at the end, at this point now, I'm not sure that's the most significant issue because no matter who's in charge in Russia, the capacity for that leader to be able to simply back down and leave is essentially nil. Even if Russia had an extremely well-informed, maybe even uh, conciliatory leader, it's hard to imagine them just sort of graciously exiting Ukraine with mea culpas at this point. So we're in this for a, for a longer duration of conflict until some kind of, of, of resolution can be reached. Let, that's let's interesting. Talk- Chris, can I just briefly Please. wrap up one more historic? Because I actually think, even though I just made the, all the World War II comparisons, I, I think that's also misleading, right? The sheer scale of the conflict is nothing like it. It hasn't spread to other parts of the world. I mean, we're not talking mm-hmm. about China and Taiwan yet, right? Um, and so instead, I've been trying to think, like, what are better historical analogies? And the two of the most readily come to mind because it's Russia would be 1939-40, when after Germany invades and Russia, the Soviet Union invades Poland, the Soviet Union invades Finland in what's called the Winter War. In some ways, like, like a student of mine was just telling me about Mark Felton, the British podcaster who does World War II videos, has been doing things related to Ukraine. He just did one about Finland, right? Because it's the sense of overwhelming Russian bear tries to quickly snatch up neighboring country, puts up fierce, heroic resistance. And the way that ended was that the Finns negotiated a, a territorial settlement and the Soviets took yep. something like 10% of Finland, mostly kind of in the neighborhood of what then was called Leningrad. Um, but it actually left Finland, you know, fairly strong, although Finland then had to make a deal with Nazi Germany. So we'll, we'll see what, I don't know if that's an analog we want to pursue. I mean, the other that I've just thought a lot about, of course, is Afghanistan, right? I mean, in terms yep. of uh, Russia invading a weaker neighbor and getting sucked into something it did not expect. But what's really striking is, do, do you guys, have you heard a reliable sense of Russian casualties to this point? How many Russian soldiers have died in a month? Uh, the Pentagon years? is estimating somewhere around 8,000, but Western media sources say that may be as high as 10 to 12. Do you know how many Russians or Soviets died in nine years of Afghanistan? Ooh, not set my head. That's a good question. 15,000. Wow. Right? And that was brutal. I mean, that is yeah. one of the key factors in undoing the Soviet regime, certainly in pushing Gorbachev into a position where, among other things, he negotiated withdrawal. Um, it caused a drug addiction <laughs> crisis, a corruption crisis, but that took nine years. And that was, in some ways, a much less intense conflict because it was mm-hmm. fought away from cities, right? It was a really asymmetric guerrilla-type war. I mean, think about what one month has done so far. Um, and in many ways, the Soviet Union is a much stronger state than Putin's Russia, even in this last year. So Absolutely. Yeah, if that is useful, I mean, then I, I didn't know if you guys had thought of other analogies. In some ways, I wonder if we need more 21st century analogies, given the kind of weapons, given that cyber warfare might be part of this. Um, so I, I, we might be at the end of my abilities as a 20th century, I doubt about. Well, don't, don't back out just yet, because I want to talk about the other way that the 20th century can inform this conversation. And that has been reactions from, uh, from Europe and elsewhere to this uh, Russian invasion. So if you listen to the Biden administration, uh, all the noise coming out of Europe is unity. And it is um, a surprising amount of coordinated sanctions, economic sanctions against Russia, very punishing ones. Is that real? Or are there cracks in the European uh, uh, armor at this point? Um, 
I think it is real to this I mean, in a couple of ways. You know, first of all, I think there is real coordination of the Western powers, and there is real concern among European countries that have not had to spend a lot of money on national defense. Countries like Germany and Sweden is suddenly announcing, now we'll spend 2% of GDP on national defense, right? Now that, that is remarkable. And, and this is mm-hmm. with Germany having just adopted a new left-center coalition with the social democratic prime minister Olaf Scholz, right? Like that was not their priority when they ran in the election last year. Um, there was a poll done by Euroscopia, which is a group of European polling firms uh, in a couple of weeks ago. And they looked at six countries asking about, would you welcome Ukraine as a member of the European Union? And we'll kind of set NATO to the side for now, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, it, it, it varied, but you know, overwhelmingly it was yes, or I'm not sure, but it was, it was yes. And then no more than 20% said no. Now, what they also said is not yet, right? They don't mm-hmm. want to rush into this. They don't necessarily want the Ukrainian economy attached to the European economy. But I think there's a genuine kind of like universal sense of outrage at Russia's actions that is turning into some degree of coordinated political, economic, um, and maybe military response. What's less clear is NATO to me. And here's maybe where the Cold War has to come in, because I guess what I hear a lot is outrage at this, sympathy for Ukraine. How can we help? And then why isn't the Biden administration doing more? Why isn't NATO doing more? Right? Why don't we have a no-fly zone established? Why aren't we sending weapons directly to them? Should we be sending troops, not just these like volunteers embedding themselves in the in Ukrainian military? Mm-hmm. So I, I have thoughts on that, but I'm curious uh, what you all think about that. How do we measure the response, I guess, not just of the Biden administration, but of Western powers? Have, have they been effective? Has it been appropriately measured? Has it been too much, not enough? So I have two sets of questions or two sets of thoughts here. Uh, the first one is on the sort of the global geostrategic response. The United States is, is sort of leading from a perspective of treating Russia um, as if it's still in a Cold War context. And I think that's appropriate. Uh, Russia and Putin still has as disposal somewhere in the range of 1,600 active warheads that they could launch relatively quickly and maybe as many as four to 5,000 nuclear warheads in general that could be put to use. That's terrifying. And Russia's military, although it has struggled deeply in Ukraine, could cause immense damage in Europe and globally if, uh, if it came to that. And there are lower intensity kinds of ways that the Russian government and the Russian military could be really problematic. You mentioned cyber warfare. And one thing we have not seen so far in this conflict, either in Ukraine or more generally, is uh, Russian cyber war efforts. We strongly believe that they have them. So the fact they haven't used them seems to be that this is a, a threat held in abeyance. That's one sort of a series of considerations. And so the, 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 Biden administration has been very reticent to give any indication and to very clearly paint for Putin uh, where our lines are. We're not sending U.S. troops in. We're not sending NATO troops in. We're not even allowing um, uh, Polish MiGs to transfer from a U.S. military base into Ukraine. We're okay with the Poles giving the Ukrainians MiGs, but we don't want them to pass through our hands. And that seems to be the line. And that seems to be where we're sort of dragging our feet. Um the other thing, other set of things, I'm sort of you guys are and you guys are both shaking your heads, but in some ways, I feel like that is one of the more important things that Biden can do at this point is rob Putin to the extent he can of a causus belli for expanding the war outside of Ukraine. And yeah, maybe, if, 
Yeah, Maybe. but I, ahead, I, I just, I disagree. But anyway, go ahead, Chris. Please, yeah. Well, and so here, I mean, I didn't really do a Cold War analogy before. So I guess what I would say is, I think you're exactly right. It's a Cold War mindset. And I run into this all the time with students. Like, I think students, when they start the Cold War class, assume, well, this was a war on communism. That was the goal of the United States government, right? It was to fight. And I have to point out, no, the, the, the goal is primarily to avoid war with the Soviet Union mm-hmm. and to hope that a protracted strategy of containing Soviet expansion would lead to an in- internal combustion, which it, mm-hmm. it does. Yeah. But if you want to think of other analogies, you've got to think about uh, Russian tanks entering Budapest in 1956 or paratroopers landing in Prague in 1968, none of which provoked any kind of, I mean, Western outrage, but not any kind of response, even approaching this, right? That, that's more, and even like Afghanistan, right, where we think, well, of course, the U.S. was participating in that war. It, it went to great lengths to, if not disguise that participation, come up with at least enough cover that the Soviets would not be put in position of having to say we are fighting against the Americans, right? So the U.S. works through proxies like Pakistan, of course, but they buy like Chinese and Czechoslovak weapons to equip the Mujahideen, right? They're not just mm-hmm. directly sending American ordnance over there. And so that's what I tend to think about. But when you mentioned the Polish MiGs, I have to say, I also thought about the very strange situation in 1940 when Winston Churchill is desperately begging for American supplies yep. Yep. before Lend-Lease. And Roosevelt, supposedly, I can't remember if this is true, but as the story goes, told him, well, I can bring them close to the border of Canada if you can transport them the rest of the way, right? And like, because <laughs> he didn't have the political support to do anything more than that. Mm-hmm. 1941, it's a different story. Uh, and so I, I guess I generally tend to think the Biden administration is doing what it can, and anything more than that would be rather foolish, given what Chris has already said about Russian nuclear capabilities. But I can also understand why it's frustrating for people. And I certainly don't know what I think about the idea of we're about to start another 40-year protracted campaign against a Cold War enemy, whether it's Russia or we should probably add China. Yeah. Yeah. Matt, Matt you want to jump in? Yeah, I guess I have really, it's, it's, it's really complex, right? And, and I I'm, don't have special expertise in this. I mean, on one hand, it does make sense for the U.S. to not put itself in a position where it would directly have to confront Russian forces, such as what you would have to have to create a no-fly zone. You would literally have to shoot down Russian aircraft and really you'd have to take out Russian um, ground-based anti-aircraft capabilities. So really no-fly zone is partly a no-drive zone, partly, right? Yep. Um, and and that is necessarily escalatory. And then you have two um, nuclear powers at war with each other, which gets really dicey really fast. Um, so, so there's that. But I, I do wonder if, I mean, so we are sending unprecedented levels of of javelins, for example, which the United States um, historically has been very reticent to dole out um, as a form of military support to other entities globally. Um, like there's actually a lot of political fights because they're actually a very capable weapons platform. Arguably, the javelins are actually more useful and more important for the, uh, the Ukrainian conventional war efforts than MiGs are because the war is being fought on the ground and not really in the air. And the Russians have not been able to establish air superiority. So in some sense, providing javelins is actually more of a causes belly than providing MiGs, right? Um, if Putin really wanted to take it to NATO, right? Um, he could trump up chart, which he's already trumped up a lot of charges. And he trumped up charges on things that Ukraine was doing. Like for crying out loud, basically Putin staged false battles with like 
Russians dressed up as Ukrainians and then basically televised that in Russia to try to trump up to basically create a cause of spelling. Right. So he's done all that already. I don't understand how basically handing off some MIGs is all of a sudden unnecessarily provocative. I I actually don't know how much it would help in the war effort for Ukrainians, but I don't understand how that is unnecessarily provocative and how that would necessarily put the U.S. in sort of a situation of having to shoot down Russians and that leads to an actual war between two um, nuclear powers. So I just want to push back on some of that um, because I think it's actually a lot more complicated. Yeah, I'll buy that too. And and. The uh, the decision not to allow those MIGs to pass through uh, Ramstein Air Force Base might be tithing the herbs, if you will. Um, it's a it's a pretty narrow sort of um, uh, action as opposed to some other things we're talking about here. I guess what I'm finding appreciative is here is that um, there seems to be a real caution, a real conservatism, if I if I use that term, in terms of Biden administration, in terms of allowing ourselves to be pulled into escalatory behavior in this conflict. Yeah. Um, but, but I mean, I, I push back a little bit against that as well, because it turns out that, um, I mean, part of the reason we're in this situation is because we took an approach that emphasized non-escalation, which basically took certain things off the table that the West was willing to do. And we did that in different situations. We did that in Syria. We did that with the Crimea. Um, you know, we you know did that with Afghanistan to some extent. We've and then and then Biden has signaled certain things that he is absolutely not going to do. Like I am not mm-hmm. going to ever commit troops. I'm not ever yep. going to implement a no-fly zone. It's like you don't signal things that you're not willing to do, and then emphasize how you don't want to escalate because what that does is that can create an incentive structure that actually encourages escalation by the other side. So I think it's a two-edged sword and you have to be, I I think it's a really hard line to walk. Um, And I'm not necessarily saying another administration would do it better, but I just think emphasizing not escalation, non-escalation policy can actually create escalation by the other side. And then you get dragged into it, whether you want to or not. I think what might be holding, I think what might be preventing that from happening is Ukraine is doing such a good job pushing back Russia that Russia just doesn't have the capacity to decide to launch any sort of real incursion into Poland, like meaningful yeah. incursion into Poland, for example. So uh, on that point, Matt, and you can speak to this well, I think, it seems to me that Biden is hemmed in in two directions. And this is often, this is always the case with uh, with American presidents, right? They have their domestic populations to think about as well as foreign affairs. Uh, Biden is trying to assist the Ukrainians as much as he can, but it seems to me that that uh, announcement of never sending U.S. ground troops into Ukraine was more squarely aimed at a U.S. domestic population. And what is still the signature failure? Well, now we have Build Back Better. The signature foreign policy failure of the Biden administration, which is the withdrawal from Afghanistan. So is this a, how much of Biden's uh, bargaining with Putin here is really deeply influenced by his own domestic predicament as a deeply unpopular U.S. president. Yeah, and the, it, it's hard. I mean, so Americans have a long and storied history of sort of like this deep isolationist streak. Like we're just going to sit 
And it goes all the way back to George Washington, right, himself, right? Um, this idea that, hey, we shouldn't get sort of bogged down into, you know, sort of foreign wars, especially in Europe, because that's just going to kind of solely American democracy. And there's no reason really to, to get involved. And you can trace that back, you know, to World War II, right? I mean, um, Chris Garrett's, you know, mentioned this as well. I mean, FDR was really chomping at the bit to help out Great Britain, for example, um, but his hands were more or less tied by the American public and by Congress. Um, so I think, but I, I think what you've seen to some extent, though, is sort of the Biden administration sort of misreading sort of that isolationist streak because Americans don't want us to get involved, but they also don't like losing um, and they don't like they don't like sort of U.S. interests or U.S. allies sort of coming out um, sort of on, on the on the losing side in some capacity. And so I think that's kind of what you saw with Afghanistan. People wanted out of Afghanistan, right? But they didn't want us to screw it up badly in the process and, and remove it and leave Afghanistan at all costs, right? Um, and I think, I, I wonder if we're seeing something like that here. Americans, for the most part, and there's lots of pulling on this, you know, Americans don't want the U.S. to commit a lot of ground troops uh, or any ground troops. There is some support for a no-fly zone, although I think mostly that's because people don't understand what would be involved in a no-fly zone. <laughs> exactly. um, people want us to support Ukraine, but they don't want to put sort of military on the ground. Um, and that's sort of the approach that Biden has taken. Although, interestingly, um, there's some new polling out. Uh, there's an, uh, an Ipsos NBC poll that just came out a couple of days ago, um, in which there's a sort of a growing sentiment about, among not only Republicans, but also Democrats, that Biden is actually being fairly weak in his response and overly cautious in his response um, to um, to dealing with the Ukraine crisis. His overall approval rating um, over the past month has increased, probably something of a rally around the flag effect. He has been effective, um, especially in how his administration has coordinated the rolling out of sanctions and made some strong statements. I think that has helped uh, the perception of, you know, the perception of how well Biden is doing. Uh, but there is a growing sense um, that America could be doing more and that Biden has taken an overly cautious approach. However, that doesn't mean that you, Americans are now all in on sort of an all out sort of um, military involvement. Um, yeah. I could say more about sort of domestic politics, but um, those are the highlights. Um, and, me, and I think Biden isn't, like you said, he's in a tough spot. Yeah, let me stick up actually for the Biden administration. This I think they should ignore that polling. I think it'd be utterly foolish to do more at this. I mean, what are they supposed to do? Uh, what what like I, I know the American people would like more to be done, but what exactly would be a prudent next step? Given that even if they allowed the MIGs to go through, that actually isn't all that important. Right? I mean, I, like if I yeah. were advising Biden, I would say sit out. I mean, don't pay attention to that poll. What what you really want is. Um, I don't know if there's going to be a Russian withdrawal anytime soon, but a negotiated peace of some sort, and then can claim credit for that before the midterm elections. I, I would not over-respond to a poll like that. I think what he's really trying to do, among other things, is um, demarcate, this is how I'm different than Donald Trump, right? I, I think he's probably trying to harken back to something like Obama-era multilateralism, right? The main thing he wants to be seen as doing is standing up to a dictator but doing it in a coordinated fashion with the peoples of the world in which America is not simply an imperialist power going in and making all the decisions, but it's actually working with its partners around the world and working through existing institutions in ways that preserve American boots from being put on the ground. Like, is that not the kind of foreign policy? I mean, I don't know if he has a doctrine yet, but that, that, that seems to be what he is pushing towards. And it's a pretty strong contrast 
with the previous presidency in, in multiple respects, not just the America firstism of it and the disdain for NATO and the disdain for European partnerships, but the obvious admiration of the person who invaded Ukraine in the first place. I don't know. I mean, that, that's a long game to kind of play. And so you're going to be temporarily unpopular, but I'm not sure it's actually either in terms of foreign policy or domestic policy, a bad strategy for him to take. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's right. I think you do get a certain amount of credibility when you're able to work effectively with allies. Um, I agree with you. There is not a significant, there's not a, there's not a whole lot more that Biden, the Biden administration can do to get involved without incurring a lot of other risks. Although I think actually we should be having that discussion, honestly, um, and maybe we can have that. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's only so much you can do as far as sending additional weapons and weapons platforms. We're doing a lot already. I think you could send um, more sophisticated weapons platforms, other sorts of things. But of course, that involves providing technical support training, right, which maybe would involve sort of U.S., you know, training sort of personnel in the theater, which that gets dicey, right, um, increases risk um, potentially and some repercussions there. So I, I agree there's only so much more that Biden administration can do um, without incurring a much higher risk of direct involvement. So, so I was just reporting sort of what the poll was saying. One thing that could be done, and this is, I think, at the like we started by this podcast by talking about the incredible amount of unity that exists amongst uh, European Union uh, members, but also NATO allies in terms of economic sanctions. But where that unity stops is basically Russian petroleum. Yeah. Although things like Nord Stream 2 were quickly canceled uh, permanently uh, as soon as uh, this invasion began, a number of EU countries continue to purchase Russian oil. Um, and these are the countries that are directly confronting this Russian incursion. And so they're, uh, they're we're in sort of they're in a very difficult position because it's really hard to ask German households in the middle of winter to stop heating their homes, which is essentially what we'd be asking them to do in order to put real economic pressure on Russia to stop buying their oil. It's relatively easy, although I'll admit given the signs of the gas pumps, somewhat painful for American consumers uh, to, to, uh, force, to forbear any sort of purchasing of Russian oil. But it's much, much more uh, perilous for Germany to do that. The only country in, in Europe that is starting sort of willingness to um, really sanction Russia where it really hurts in terms of its petroleum exports is France. And so the Biden administration, I think, could put on a much heavier push among for towards Germany, um, uh, Italy to try to get them to essentially um, sign off or, or sort of uh, sanction or embargo Russian oil exports. But that's probably a non-starter, at least in the current months. If he if this conflict drags on into June and July, that becomes a much more live option. And that might be something to watch out for. Yeah. It seems like short-term, I don't know how you would do that. It could produce a long-term development that's important, right? You could either redirect that towards alternative suppliers, right, of the mm -hmm. same products, which I'm sure there's some suppliers out there who'd be very excited. Oh, Chris, about. what kinds of alternative suppliers are you thinking about? Do you uh, mean... I'll, I'll uh, let you talk about that. Do you mean Saudi Arabia which <laughs> and uh, hmm. Qatar, which just signed a really sweet new deal with Germany to provide an ex a much larger increase in their oil production? Yeah, that's interesting. Very the other way is you think about like maybe what this does is it, you know, for example, in a country like Germany, that's got the Green Party in a coalition with the SPD, it, you almost, you match multiple 
concerns, say climate change plus weaning ourselves of dependency on Russian oil and gas, right? But that that that, that is not a quick fix, even if we were just talking about climate change by itself. But I, I could see in some of these countries, given the kinds of political coalitions you already have, that, like, that, that could lend impetus then to those kinds of policies, which in Europe are already taking place to a greater extent than this country, right? And it may be a reason France is a little bit more prone to join these sanctions is what, what is the single biggest supplier of power, the single biggest type of power in France? It's nuclear power. It's nuclear, nuclear power, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, uh, and it could yeah. have been in Germany too, but they they made a policy change twenty five years ago. I mean, the yeah. Germans were, I mean, the Germans are really great at certain things, but they were really dumb in how they did energy policy. Say, hey, we're not going to use any of our own oil and natural gas reserves. We'll increase, you know, um, sort of alternative like solar and wind, which are not, you know, reliable all the time. But then, since we want, don't want to drill on our own line, we'll just import everything from Russia, right? It's basically the worst sort of energy policy, like when it comes to like a geopolitical set of considerations possible, right? So, I mean, I think they're dealing with it about as well as they can, given the bed that they created that they now have to lie in, right? I mean, it, it, basically, NATO and the United States are are dealing, I, I think, doing about as well as can be expected on the whole. We can quibble with various things, given the situation that we put ourselves in to some extent, um, which is a whole whole other conversation problem. So. One more international reaction. Uh, um, well, one and a half. Can I, can I do one and a half? Yeah. As long um, as China is either one or the half, Chris. China's the one. Okay. okay. So here's, here's the half. <laughs> there are several countries out there that you should keep your eye on because they have very close economic ties to Russia and potentially cultural ties as well, but they're also Western aligned. And I would include specifically in here uh, Israel, South Africa, and to a lesser extent, India, um, uh, all three of which are democracies, all three of which have close Western ties, but also three of which economically, in the case of Israel, are culturally tied to Russia. And they have sort of built themselves as mediators. Now, Israel does not have a great track record of being an international mediator, as it turns out. Neither does South Africa. <laughs> and India's is, is pretty much limited to the non-aligned movement, going back to the Cold War. So in this case, mediator really <laughs> seems to mean we don't want to mess with Russia and we also don't want to mess with the West. So just please leave us alone. <laughs> um, okay, so that's my half. So keep an eye on that. The one, though, is China. And this is the other great power of the international system. We, uh, I think sort of foolishly or vainly, not foolishly, vainly perhaps, uh, the West uh, hoped that China would sort of pile on and help end this conflict quickly by roundly condemning it, standing up for its uh, long-term principles of non-intervention and criticize the Russians and isolate them in the UN. And China is not willing to do that. Um, China does not have any interest in seeing um, uh I'm sure they're very, very annoyed uh, that this has gone so badly for Russia. Uh, what China wants more than anything else is for this to be over quickly. China does not benefit from the international system being in turmoil. They benefit from the international system being stable. And yet they're not going to undermine a strategic partnership they have with the Russians. So is, there, is, is, base, is China basically... I guess I guess one way to ask is, is China um, the kingmaker in this situation? If they side with Russia, does that 
essentially give Russia new life in this conflict. And if they sort of stay out of the mix, it's sort of, it, um, it robs Russia of important assets and resources. Are they that important? Uh, What's your read on this? I ask it, what do you mean by side with Russia? I mean, what beyond what they're currently doing or not doing in terms of not condemning or. So what seems to have, so um, what I've, what I've been reading from Western uh, non-classified sources is that Russia's uh, logistics, as Matt talked about earlier, are starting to run thin. And what they could really benefit from is an influx of supplies, specifically kind of the kinds of same kinds of things that were hurting the United States in the aftermath of, of COVID, a lack of chips, a lack of computer chips and, and, um, and semiconductors, uh, communications equipment, something to replace that 3G plan, perhaps. Uh, China has those things and could supply those to the Russians. As of yet, they have not been willing to do so. And even if they did, to be clear, it would be some weeks or months before those things actually sort of became apparent in the field, in the, in the war effort in Ukraine. But in the short term, if China withholds those things, Russia's capacity to fight a large deployment war in Ukraine could dry up fairly quickly. With China's help, it could continue for a much longer period of time. Well, so let me, what is, what is China's interest in this continuing for a much longer time? I mean, in some sense, wouldn't it be better for, for Putin to simply be forced to have to save face somehow, get out of this and restore the stability you were talking about? Maybe I misunderstand the nature of the strategic relationship between Russia and China. It's, I don't feel like China is utterly dependent on Russia winning its, whatever its initial war aims were. We haven't even talked about that. Um, would they want to prolong this in some way? i I can't imagine they would unless unless Xi Jinping thinks for some reason that having all of the United States and Europe tied up in a conflict in Ukraine gives China more freedom to operate in other kinds of ways. Mm. But that's, for example, if you wanted to believe the mustache twirling villain scenario, which I do not believe, understand that characterization, I do not think Xi will take advantage of Ukraine to invade Taiwan. I think that's ridiculous. And there's no evidence to suggest that that's, that that's in the offing. There's no forced deployment that suggests that that's likely. But if you wanted to sort of distract the rest of the world while you were prepared to do something else, mm-hmm. I guess you could prolong the conflict. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I guess what I would think, oh, sorry, come in. I, I was just going to ask, like, I mean, so the Biden administration, I, just this past week, I think, you know, basically said something about the, like, kind of, if you decide to step in this, right, and get involved, um, you know, our economic, you know, ire is going to be directed, you know, in your direction. Right. Um, and that's definitely not something China wants. Um, and if China, it, is, wa- it isn't, but it's also much, much harder to execute. What, uh, absolutely. And I mean, we can inflict a huge amount of pain on Russia for almost no cost to our economy, especially in the United States. China is like a whole nother ballgame. Right. But I, I, I do wonder, right. Um, as you see some U.S. firms sort of pulling out of China and relocating to other sort of Southeast Asian countries, for example, um, which, you know, that that trend has been going on for a while now. I, I do wonder if China doesn't want to risk even that sort of low level sort of economic impact because their economy is, is growing at a, a significantly lower rate than it has been. Um, and even they are admitting that now. And if China wants to continue to sort of build itself up to be sort of the the global superpower and sort of supersede the United States as the global superpower, they can't afford to do that. Um, And if they do have their eyes on Taiwan, they want to be as strong as possible until they're ready. And and so I do wonder like, what's the point of 
of necessarily, you know, drawing, you know, further ire from, um, from the West, even from Western, you know, companies who are voluntarily pulling up stakes from Russia, apart from any sort of regime package, like what's the point of drawing the ire from them and, and potentially bringing a little bit of harm to the Chinese economy for very little benefit in, in helping out the Russians for, you know, an ill-conceived and, um, you know, badly executed war. I, I just don't, yeah. I don't see what the upside is for China. I only see downside, but, yeah. but I, I'm not Chinese and I, I'm not, I'm not Xi Jinping. So I, I don't know. <laughs> well, Chris, can I ask you here? So it's, I mean, it's yeah. one kind of longer term outcome of this. Uh, yeah. It, it's not really a realignment in the sense the alignment exists, but if we are entering the early stages of a new cold war, I mean, is part of what's being forged now, a relationship between two countries that are both powerful, both have a difficult relationship with the United States, um, but also are deeply suspicious of pluralistic democracy. I mean, is that the kind of ideological new Cold War that we're seeing forged right now if China, say, does decide to uh, uh, strengthen its commitment to whatever Russia is trying to do? I, I, I don't know. Like, this is why I'm a historian. Mm-hmm. I, I can look back at this. Uh, when I teach my class in the fall, I'm going to end with two weeks like I have the last two times of do we have a new Cold War brewing? And I've always talked mm-hmm. about Russia and China. I haven't necessarily thought about are we seeing a kind of um, partnership like the one that did exist for a while during the Cold War? That's a really good question. I, I'll, I'll answer with something that just popped in my head and I don't. So so please don't hold this against me at all. It's probably utter garbage and feel free to laugh if you want. Right. Let me write this um, down. Okay. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've talked about analogies today. We've talked about analogies to the cold war analogies to, uh, to world war two. Every five years, there is some kind of event in American foreign policy that causes pundits to say, is this America's Suez crisis? Is this the moment in in your world? At least I've never heard that before. That's great. (laughs) Um, This is uh, the Suez crisis. Just very shortly here um, was a, was it? Um, a boondoggle between the French and the British and the Israelis to seize the Suez Canal from Sadat and the Egyptians, um, which the which essentially the Soviets and this is back in what was it fifty six I think fifty six um, yeah. uh, which uh, um, the Americans and the Soviets declined to participate in and basically it was sort of humiliating for the British and the French because it forced them to sort of admit we're no longer on the same power level as as the the Russians and the Americans mm-hmm. now. Could Amer- could Afghanistan, the plot of Afghanistan, be America's Suez crisis? Probably not. Is America's debacle in Iraq um, a, a Suez moment? Uh, maybe in retrospect, hard to say. But if Russia is sort of definitively proven, we can't even take Ukraine in a meaningful kind of way. Um, and Russia and China and the United States come in later to clean up the pieces. Could that be Russia's Suez moment? Mm. And what that would do is clarify the stakes of the global power environment for China and the United States moving forward. So in that sense, I don't think this is a new Cold War in any meaningful sense. The the circumstances are very different. The United States and China are major trading partners. They're They're ideologically antagonistic only in the sense of sort of their values, not so much their governance. Um, I, I don't think it's a Cold War analogy, but what it would be is a clarifying of the stakes of the distribution of power in the system. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And I'll, I'll sort of footstomp that. I mean, even before all this sort of blew up and even before Russia started some serious saber rattling back basically last April, 
Um, I remember Chris, you and I were having a conversation basically exactly 12 months ago on this. I mean, Russia was never the most important sort of um, contender against the United States. It's, it's been China, right? And that's been clear. And I don't think this changes that. And like you said, Chris, I think it just this just clarifies that that Russia is is not not what a you know not what we thought it would be. I mean, I mean, this was sort of. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, and, and you two more know more about this than I do. And then I'll make one other point: is that you know when when the Soviet curtain uh, the, the, when the when the, when the when the Iron Curtain fell and the Soviet Union broke apart, you know, we learned all of these things about just sort of the state of readiness of sort of Russian forces and their capabilities and what their economy truly was. And it was a lot worse than even some of the best intelligent estimates like, oh, like in a head to head conflict, like um, Russia is not nearly as capable as we thought they were. And I, I wonder if we're basically committing sort of kind of committed the same error now. Right. Uh, Russia isn't nearly as capable as we thought they were for a variety of reasons. Um Sort of the flip side of sort of the the other side of the coin of like sort of the, is this Russia's sort of Suez moment? Um, I think this moment also clarifies or pushes back against sort of the naysayers that say sort of liberal democracy is so decadent and beyond the pale that it can't respond effectively. Um, and you know, liberal democracy is sort of on its way out. Sort of the authoritarian systems are on their way in. And, you know, liberal democracies don't have the sort of the, the commitment and the willpower and the principles to sort of stand up. Um, and certainly there was a lot of good case to be made for that. Clearly, that factored into uh, Putin's sort of calculation um, that the West would not stand up to him. Uh, but I think Putin and the West, <laughs> these commentators have sort of underestimated um, what the West is still capable of doing. Um, and and not just Western governments, but um, average citizens who are changing their, you know, changing their, you know, uh, consumption habits and, and Western companies, right. Um, who, you know, are still beholden to their shareholders, but are still have some principles and are willing to basically stand up and say, we're going to have no part of this sort of genocidal war. So, um, I think that suggests that even though liberal democracy has become decadent and has been on the decline, there's still a lot more, um, good there and a lot more power there than perhaps, um, some of us had thought. So, that, which I think is good news, actually. I, I do too, and it's why I was thinking of the Cold War ideological kind of analogy. I mean, I, I, I feel like the surviving Cold War liberals who are out there have just had their hearts strangely warmed. Of like, hey, Americans can come <laughs> together across partisan divides, and maybe a culture war is not as important as this other kind of conflict mm -hmm. between freedom and autocracy, right? And I, I, I just didn't know if that's kind of a rhetorical moment we're having, or if there actually is a kind of like shift happening. I mean, like I've seen a lot of people speculate that there is a kind of pattern of Russian military misadventures leading to uh, at least political instability, if not democratic change, right? And this goes all the way back to the Crimean War. It goes all the way back to the Napoleonic Wars and the December Revolution. But you mm. can certainly see it in the 20th century, you know, Russian leadership getting foolishly involved in wars that reveal the weakness of the regime produces some kind of change. Now, it doesn't really lead to liberal democracy in any lasting sense, but it does lead to change, right, in, in ways yeah. that are, I think are hard to see right now. Like, I'm not sure Putin is any closer to being overthrown, right? I'm not convinced of that, but it's also very hard to predict Russia's future given those kinds of analogies. We're, this is the hope, most hopeful we've sounded this whole podcast. So, at, so just out of sheer avoidance of anything that comes next, I'm going to stop us here. <laughs> so, <laughs> thanks, but guys. Wait. <laughs> but wait, I have more doom. Um, 
wonderful. Thank you all very much uh, for joining us. We will be back in your feed somewhat intermittently this semester because uh, let's be honest, this sabbatical is not going to sabbat itself. So um, I, I'm checking in intermittently here when I call up these guys and say, we got to talk about something and then we will we'll pull back. So I'm sure that Tweet Victory will be back in your normal Friday feed next week, but we'll be along sometime shortly after that. Uh, make sure you check out everything else that's happening um, on the channel. Chris, do you want to give a quick plug for College for Christians? Yeah, so this is the new podcast Sam and I have uh, launched. We've got a couple in the can, but it debuted this week. It's basically uh, helping me think through a new book I've wanted to write for a couple of years of trying to help Christian high school students and their parents think about higher ed, which is inordinately complex before you even touch on religion. And then you add religion to the mix and it gets even more complicated. So uh, we kind of start with our own stories this week. Next week, we're going to talk about why people go to college in the first place, which is complex in other ways. And then we'll kind of survey higher ed and then we'll kind of get into specific topics like financial aid and figuring out fits and then thinking about academics and all the rest. So I think that's Wednesdays, at least for the spring. That sounds great. It's a worthy project. I'm glad you're doing it. Thanks, guys. Uh, make sure you email us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. You can always reach out to the channel too at channel 3900 at gmail.com. Make sure you subscribe to the channel for great things like College for Christians, Election Shock Therapy, Tweet Victory, and a whole lot of other things coming down the pipe. And until you hear our voices again, Thanks for listening and go Royals. Mm-hmm.